Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about Aventure, a new platform that's making venture capital available to the masses. It doesn't matter if you are an accredited or non-accredited investor. Aventure provides a opportunity to diversify your investment portfolio by providing access to investing in venture capital funds. The Aventure app provides everything you need to make startup investments, including extensive research material, seamless transaction processes, and allocation measures. For fund managers, Aventure seeks to help you streamline your operations and launch your fund. Now, typically, venture capital and startup investments are liquid, which is a major pain point in our industry. Aventure is fixing this by offering periodic withdrawals for its investors. I and many others in the industry are so excited about this launch. Their first fund launch is coming early next year. So if you want to be the first in the know, join their waitlist at aventure.vc. That's A-V-E-N-T-U-R-E dot V-C. Also check the link in the show notes. Aventure is a California-based fintech company and operates independently from investment advisors on its platform who may be registered as investment advisors in the U.S. or qualify for exempt reporting status. Hey, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying the show, also subscribe to my newsletter at theconsumervc.com for all episodes directly to your inbox and a weekly roundup of all consumer venture deals happen. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about Aventure, a new platform that's about to launch that's making venture capital available to the masses. It doesn't matter if you're accredited or not accredited. Aventure provides an opportunity to diversify your investment portfolio and invest in private funds. If you're a fund manager, the Aventure app also provides everything you need in order to make startup investments, including extensive research materials, seamless transaction processes, and allocation measures so you can properly diversify your portfolio. Now, typically, venture capital and startup investments are liquid, which is a major pain point for industry. Aventure is fixing this by offering periodic withdrawals for its investors. I and many others in this industry are so excited about this launch, they are preparing to list their first fund in the beginning of next year. So if you want to be the first to know, join their waitlist at aventure.vc. Our guest today is Ryan Woodbury, co-founder of Needed. Needed is on a mission to empower every woman with the fundamental nutrition information products and community they need in order to be optimally nourished before, during, and after pregnancy. We discuss how she started in nutrition, why she decided to create a prenatal supplement company, why it took three years in R&D, how she thinks about the D2C channel, working with doctors, and the LTV of her customers, as well as a lot, a lot more. This is a really great episode about how she built her business and how to think about the D2C channel. Really, really, really enjoyed chatting with Ryan. Without further ado, here she is. Ryan, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? Mike, I'm great. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, really appreciate you you making the time. So what was your first introduction to entrepreneurship? Did you always want to be an entrepreneur growing up? I would say not necessarily. I was a very entrepreneurial personality, a very much since I was a little kid, always wanting to do something better and wanting to make something better than the status quo and had that sort of, okay, how do we make this better intuition, but felt in many ways that that could be applied 
to a number of different organizations, whether or not it was entrepreneurship exactly. My first full throttle exposure to entrepreneurship was um, through the Mayfield Fellows Program at Stanford, which is a deep dive year long program in in entrepreneurship, um, starting, you know, new tech ventures. What were some of your learnings throughout that program? That's a great question. I mean, I think one of the biggest ones that I come back to all the time was around product market fit and really knowing who is your consumer, what is their problem, and how does your solution solve your problem? And I think if you can just focus really with blinders on on that, it is such an important aspect of entrepreneurial ventures being successful. No, that's yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. What so what led you then? Um, after you, I guess, came out of this fellowship, what what then led you to um, founding needed? And I guess, what what were you doing prior? <laughs> yeah, I can give a little bit of that trajectory. And it's a little bit of a, you know, a surprising path for some people in some ways. So my core background is really in environmental science. And that was what I was most passionate about as a young person. My first job was working for an aquarium in middle school underneath the Santa Monica Pier, teaching about environmental advocacy. Realized then that I got people to care about some of the esoteric environmental ocean science issues that I was interested in when you could make the connection between human and environmental health. And also during that time, you know, different era that it is now, working underneath the pier, I also fell into yoga and a lot of the wellness trends that were happening around Santa Monica and Venice, you know, 25 years ago of started doing yoga, drinking kombucha, doing meditation when I was 10, 11 years old. So wellness and the connection between human health and environmental health was a big driver. That's ultimately what I studied in college did a 360 um, and shocked a lot of my um, environmental science professors. They were very angry with me. And so was um, Tom Byers, at, um, who runs the Stanford kind of Mayfield Fellows program. But I actually joined Golden Sachs out of Stanford undergrad. And Tom's like, you know, I remember we were having a reunion speech for Mayfield. And he was just saying like, oh, you Mayfield fellows are so wonderful. I'm so glad with all the good things you guys are doing. And thank God none of you, you know, went and signed up to the man and went to Goldman. And then everyone looked at me and were like, Tom, you forgot about Ryan. <laughs> um, so anywho, uh, basically, a lot of that was just quickly driven as I don't want to divert it. But effectively, I'd written a paper my senior year of college after having spent time in a number of clean tech related startups, spending time in DC working for the Environmental Committee on um, Health and Public Works. Um, that like change from an environmental kind of way was needed to be made, not in kind of startups were too random. And DC was too slow and too political that I was really bullish on kind of large Fortune 1000 companies having more of an effort around give back and social good and becoming more political and that they had the power to kind of make bigger changes. So I was lucky to join Goldman and lucky that um, Nike was one of my biggest clients when I was there. Um, so got to set you know, prepare board decks for Nike, sell two companies for Nike. Um, and, you know, I think they're one of the leaders in that thesis actually coming true when you think about how sort of politically active they've been over the last few years for better or for worse. So anyways, that's how I made the transition from environmental science 
to um, investment banking. I did a short stint in venture capital thereafter and worked in one of our portfolio companies, then went back to business school. And fast forward, that's where I met my co-founder, Julie, and how we ended up starting Needed. So what was the initial um, insight that you saw with with Needed? And why did you think that that prenatal vitamins, there, there needed to be some disruption or there could be a, a better way? Yeah, I um, can talk about that because it was very personal. So Julie, as I mentioned, like myself, we are kindred spirits, deep lifelong interest in nutrition and health. And we, I think we're truthfully exposed to the motherhood journey for the first time in business school, as a lot of our friends were starting to trying to conceive or have babies. And we, knew, we both knew we wanted to be mothers one day, but we were seeing it front and center and really saw watching friends how broken the perinatal nutrition paradigm was. Um, and we felt our friends were having, you know, more of a negative experience, whether it was through their symptoms, their recovery postpartum, or the trajectory of their kids' cognitive and immune development because of how they were undersupported nutritionally. And basically what we saw in digging into the research is despite 97% of women in the U.S. taking a prenatal 95% of them are nutrient deficient. So prenatal supplements at the core just aren't cutting it. And that just pissed us off, truthfully. And I think we wanted something better for ourselves. So it started, I think, as a little bit of a personal journey exploration of like, how do we prepare for motherhood? And how do we optimize this and put our bodies in the best place in order to sort of optimize fertility experiences. And then once we are pregnant, make the, you know, healthiest, most vibrant pregnancy that we could. So we turned to sort of our main trusted advisors, which became an interdisciplinary group of functional nutritional medicine doctors that we saw through getting to know them, they were having better outcomes than the status quo based off of how they were um, basically creating protocols to have their patients supplement differently. So effectively, the core prenatals that you see at the grocery store or by other direct-to-consumer, um, you know, venture-backed companies are really just designed around bare minimum nutrition, which is based on outdated guidance and stale research. And that's leading to women being nutrient deficient at this life stage. There were better prenatals being made in the practitioner channel, but they were kind of companies that you've never heard of and you could never access them without going through a practitioner. And their prenatal was often an afterthought in their portfolio. So you'd maybe get your multivitamin and mineral blend, but in order to get other needs met in pregnancy, it was a very clunky process that you couldn't do easily. So you ended up, if you're working with one of these practitioners, you were buying, you know, seven to 15 different products from five or six different brands. And really, we felt that there was an opportunity to make this optimal nutrition, these protocols much more accessible to a wider audience. So rebuild the products from the ground up and then offer the education such that people understood why um, why they were better uh, from an outcome perspective. From the consumer side, 
because um, I remember you saying how there are better options or there were better options if you actually went through a practitioner and the practitioner maybe give you a recommendation for a better option for for prenatal. Did you feel like the other when you were when you were kind of analyzing the space and on the consumer facing um, side where you know products that you didn't have to go through a practitioner that you say were we were, were say that that they're much more focused maybe on their marketing rather than the actual product itself or was it that the research has actually gotten a lot better. And um, in terms of what the, maybe the ingredients choice or the actual makeup of these vitamins um, and companies just weren't really paying attention. Sure. It's a combination of both probably. So one, I think um, as we found, it took a lot longer than we expected. We were in R&D for three years. It's a big process to rebuild kind of vitamins from the ground up. Most of the supplement companies that you see are white labeling other people's products. So it is like a brand or fulfillment kind of play. So there isn't actually any core um, R&D or improvement from the product side. It is purely brand, as you said. I would say that's not the only problem, though. I think the second problem is, you know, a greater problem of just... Um, Western medicine being behind when it comes to nutrition and um, the government standards as well, that and prenatal, that life stage being understudied. So the way that our like practitioners are dosing to see better outcomes are not um, around sort of the RDAs. So the RDAs are the percent daily facts. They drive the percent daily facts that you see on any label. Like, oh, you just got like 100% of your daily value of vitamin C and you sort of feel good about yourself. What you need to understand is those sort of percentages are driven under a philosophy of how do you avoid a disease condition? Not where we fundamentally believe, you know, pregnancy and postpartum is the most nutritionally taxing time of a woman's life. We don't want you to get your bare minimum needs met. We want you to be optimally supported. And I think there's just education required to sort of shift the mindset of people to not be scared by, oh my gosh, there's, you know, a thousand percent of my vitamin B12 value here. And um, we were able to get sort of comfortable with all of those based off of this thousands of practitioners we'd worked with to pull data from their practices to understand sort of safety and better efficacy. So for those three years that you were in R&D, which is um, a long, a long time, I know you were consulting or or talking with a lot of practitioners were, was it also trialing um as well or like what was kind of like the process when it comes to the r&d to actually create like a whole new vitamin because it seemed like you had to start maybe not completely from scratch right there was already you know research or using new data but um comparatively to what's outside the market like if you know you're you're trying to actually own own your own ip as well yeah um so it's all good questions i think like We'll answer that two ways of one. Yes, there was trialing. I will say that like, I'm the biggest skinny pig on myself of making sure it works for us before we do others and constant testing and tinkering and um, adjusting things. And there were so many people within our practitioner network that were doing the same. Um, But a lot of it came down to, I think, you know, for better or for worse, we, um, the, the supplements industry, like the more that you learn about it, the more you're like, I wish I didn't know this. 
And the more that you learn, the more that you have to validate every step along the way. So a lot of it was making sure every single ingredient that we put in the product met our standards in terms of, you know, dosing, how it was made, um, how stable it would be, how it would interact with other nutrients, because it was both we were looking to have the best product on the market. And when you're dealing with a pregnant consumer, you can't get it wrong. Um, and from an IP perspective, um, you know, we're very transparent in everything that we put in our product. So, you know, some, you know, investors will ask, like, how is your stuff, you know, protected? And can someone recreate it? And yeah, I think like a lot of companies could look at our labels and then push out um, a product that's almost, you know, exactly the same pretty quickly. Where we see our biggest differentiation is a couple fold of one, we have the deepest practitioner relationships than any other company in the space. So we just have such integral trust and a feedback loop that we're constantly always making the products better and are ahead of the curve on the next product that the customer needs. And the second is we've um, developed really deep industry supplier relationships because a lot of the ingredient manufacturers love us because they're like, you're the first ones that are actually putting in the dosages that have been clinically studied. Most people put like five to 10% as window dressing just to say that they have it. So they're investing in us too. And with that, um, especially with the help of our an investor advisor of ours who's coming in to, um in joining our team full time in January, who's sort of like a icon in the industry of supply chain negotiations, we know that we can have the best margins for the best product. And um, I think some of the folks would, you know, looking under the hood would be surprised, you know, the cost at which we're able to make such high quality products So sort of we'll beat you at practitioner trust, and we'll beat you at um input costs, you can't compete with our margins. And that allows us to not necessarily have um, oh, a proprietary formula that no one else can make. And so with that practitioner trust, I would, um, I would presume that maybe comes then as a sales channel for you in terms of the, the practitioners actually advising um, their, their patients when they are thinking about prenatal vitamins, about which which is the best one that they, they should do. Is that, is that really right? And, and that can be like, a obviously you have a huge network of practitioners that could really be quite an advantage for you. A hundred percent. And I think the way that like, that's slightly different or where we've innovated on that, like practitioner channel model is, um, yes, practitioners do sell direct to their patients. And yes, we are on fullscript.com, which is the largest practitioner dispensary. So where practitioners send their patients to um, uh, like basically get a supplement um, prescription effectively. And we're excited that we just learned we're the number one women's health brand on Fullscript now and they serve like 200,000 practitioners in the US and Canada. Um, but it's really what we think of our model is we're practitioner to supported direct to consumer. We're 85% of our revenue is direct to consumer. And the majority of that 85%, like 90% of it is revenue, is excuse me, subscription. So at the core, we are a subscription DTC business, 
But the way um, practitioners are a part of that and are a important sales channel for us is that they are referring their patients and audiences digitally to us. And they appear greatly in our, you know, paid marketing spend. Most of our paid marketing dollars go behind um, elevating practitioners in our network or content that's co-written together. So they're, they are involved and intertwined in everything that we do from a, a marketing perspective. What I think is also pretty interesting, too, when you think about when I think at least about like R&D, I think of, you know, somebody kind of going away and just focus on the product and doing their and of course, doing their thing. But in your scenario, yes, that was obviously, you know, the case for three years, um, focusing on the product. But since you collaborated so more, so hard with, you know, practitioners, that's also building like a sales channel there for over three years and building that kind of trust with them as well, um, which is kind of interesting. So when you launch, um, you already have, you know, advocates for, for you and, and for needed. Yeah, 100%. And I think that groundwork that we did early, even though it took a lot longer to get going has really helped. And in some ways, the tailwinds of COVID have really helped. So effectively, we launched the business in August 2020. Everything was on pre-order then because um, of COVID-related supply chain. So things really started shipping in January 2021. So we are about to hit our two-year mark for product going out the door effectively. And um, we were at a $10 million run rate. So we're excited about that scale. And given the limited time frame, it was our practitioner sort of network that fueled that growth and allowed us to do it from a very lean team perspective, because it was just myself and my business partner, Julie, until um, the end of January of this year. So we operated pretty small from a full-time basis. And it was that we had just a, a network of folks on the ground sort of supporting us, um, which is awesome. When you were thinking of, uh, as well, originally getting into um, this business, th- this category of prenatal vitamins, how did you also think about lifetime value of, of for the customer? Because I'd imagine that uh, this is obviously extremely important time for, um, uh, for mothers, um, um, especially, you know, new mothers that maybe haven't um, uh, quite experienced um, that never obviously experienced like these, these changes in their bodies. Um, How, um, but it obviously like doesn't, you know, last forever, right? There's always, it's it's for a specific window. When does it make sense for someone to start taking uh, prenatal vitamins and also um, just how long overall is that period? Yeah, that's a great question. So A lot of that comes down to education, but even most sort of OBs will say start taking a prenatal six months before trying to conceive Um, and, you know, three months at a minimum. So it starts earlier than folks would anticipate that it's not just those like nine months of pregnancy because that trying to conceive, if you tart it six months before trying to conceive and in a really optimal way, maybe a year. And then it takes people many months to try to conceive. And then you want to stay on your prenatal um, at least all the way through breastfeeding. That extends the timeline. And then I would say our practitioners, if you really want to look at optimally supporting your body, because in some ways, you know, optimal fertility, optimal egg health, um, all of this is really just signals that overall physical metabolic function is working properly. 
that you don't really, in an ideal world, you wouldn't get off your prenatal for your entire kind of childbearing years when you want to have a kid, right? Not everyone's there, but the folks that are very disciplined and listening to our practitioner base end up, you know, taking their prenatal assortment for a longer period of time. So that's one area that extends LTV versus on the face of it, it can seem really niche. The second that is very helpful for our business versus some of the other, you know, direct-to-consumer competitors out there is that one, our core product, our best-selling product is our complete plan, and it pairs um, four supplements together to kind of meet your needs before, during, and after pregnancy. Um, And that's like a, you know, a little over $100 product. And then most of our consumers are layering products on top of that for additional support. So hydration support, sleep support, um, stress support. So our average order values are three to four times higher from what we understand it than peers in our space. So that also helps that even if someone does only stay with you for the nine months of pregnancy, it's much easier to get sort of a nicer LTV if that initial kind of average order value is higher from the start. And then the third one that I'll share that we're working on is that, you know, our consumer is desperately asking, you know, for um, one, infant and children, and two, when I am absolutely done having kids and I'm just a mom, what do I take next when I don't want prenatal to be on my bottle? So we are thinking about LTV extenders through kind of one, following our co-consumer to a different life stage, and two, growing with her family. Like she trusted us all through pregnancy, saw that the difference it made for her baby, and then wants to know that we are trusted by all the practitioners that she trusts most. How do we kind of grow that family assortment? So those are the sort of the three ways that we think about it. So the future for needed could be that the prenatal vitamins is almost like the entry point for the customer. We view ourselves as ultimately a family nutrition brand, but we think that that anchor of starting with a family around the trying to conceive prenatal life stage is an important factor because it's sort of a time when someone's head is perking up and they're willing to change habits and they're willing to learn a ton. And you know, for better or for worse, like education is very critical to our business model working, right? Because you can't look at our supplement facts panel as just like a novice consumer and know why it's different. You know, cyanocobalamin versus methylcobalamin is two forms of B12. And what is a microgram versus a milligram? That's like meaningless to most consumers, So we have to kind of, you know, in a lot of ways, it works best when we can capture them at a time when they're looking to learn or get new advice and change habits. So even when we have products for other life stages um, further on, we are sort of, you know, bullish of this, you know, customer acquisition working best at the prenatal life stage. And, And then, you know, it's really around how do you retain them thereafter? How also did you think about and approach financing the business from the get-go? Because I'd imagine, you know, saying that maybe to any investor, hey, we're going to be in R&D for three years, um, especially being, you know, a um, started off as a, you know, digital brand, that sounds like kind of a scary thought, right? Um, so how how did you approach 
financing and also raising like your first round of capital? Yeah. Um, so I will answer that in two ways. So one, like because of our sort of deep emphasis on R&D, even though like I, you will look at it now and it's very capital efficient in a lot of ways, it is a scary kind of factor for most VCs, especially when we were raising, um, you know, our first rounds, we graduated from business school in 2017 and we closed our first round and we had a, a small kind of, you know, mentor who gave us that first check to allow us to get some proof of concept. And then we um, raised our first kind of institutional round in 2018. It was a time where I think you were still on the tail end of like venture capital. Everyone was innovating on a better brand for everything, like the Casper of everything. And no one was investing in actually high quality products. I remember like at the end of my time in VC, I was sort of like, I don't know if there's like a single venture backed company right now where I actually think the products are good. The branding's great, but like, you know, we were, but we were lucky to find the right investor. Um, and a big shout out to Barb Poldis of Segment Ventures, who was our first institutional backer. And her core thesis of her fund was we need to bring better science back to the consumer space. So there was huge alignment and her believing that longer term um, growth was going to be driven by, you know, product quality and proving efficacy in the consumer space. So that first aspect was, I can say, like finding, you know, vision, cash alignment. And then the second aspect that has um, dramatically changed the trajectory of our business is that we were lucky to be part of um settles beta test. So they're, um, you know, offer credit to, to young startups. And they've, we've been able to sort of push limits and be early at testing the bands of how big of a facility and how many kind of extra months of working capital that you can get from them. And effectively, that's transformed our business. I mean, we launched 11 products this year that we built from scratch. You shouldn't be able to do that based off of the amount of, um, you know, equity dollars that we've raised. But we've been able to because we're working with just like such efficient working capital and in many months, positive working capital. And I can share an example of this of like effectively in Q4, so where we are right now, um, for products that we received into inventory, we expect to generate about a little over $3 million off of those products coming in the door over the next handful of three months. We will make all of that three, three and a half million dollars other than about 65K of it before we have to pay for that inventory. So it just allows you to scale in a way that we wouldn't otherwise. And I think that's something that I am very bullish around where these sorts of credit businesses, it's a little scary with the macro and where is credit going. But, um, I, you know, in some ways, like Shopify was step number one in making it easier for consumer brands to be able to launch of your whole, you know, payment and website was all easy and integrated there. And I think the step number two to really be able to allow new businesses to get pushed out is being able to get that um, inventory upfront costs and cash management working more efficiently. Cool. I thought, I thought Settle did um, 
only did kind of POs and um, and finance retail type. They, they also do e- e-commerce as well? They do, yeah. They've been an important partner of ours. Um, so they do do um, basically how it works with them or a quick snapshot is they, they, they basically finance the POs that we put in place versus what we receive with our um, manufacturing partners. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. POs, POs manufacturing partners. Got it. I thought, I thought it was only, um, this is, um, I've, I've learned a ton. I thought, I thought it was only, um, with, um, like inventory used for retail, not for um, e-commerce. That's, that's really cool. Really cool. How did you also approach when you were thinking about price, um, price and price point for, um, the subscription for needed. And do you also, since it's a subscription business, do you have plans or are you planning to go to retail? Um, and how would that work? Because I'd imagine that, that that would probably be a little bit tricky. Yeah. So two ways to answer that. So one, a lot of the pricing was driven by a combination of like, we wanted healthy margins of making sure that our business was, you know, cash sustainable for the long term versus too much over investing in sort of revenue growth, but the unit economics wouldn't work. But a lot of the pricing was driven by um, factoring in appropriate commissions for our practitioner base. So most of our practitioners are used to referring their patients to fullscript.com, which is also an important part of our business model. I mentioned earlier that we're there. And there they get, um, they do get commissions off of all sort of sales. And it is an important part of making their core businesses work because most of these practitioners are operating, you know, chiropractors, nutritionists, acupuncturists, concierge OBGYNs who are more nutritionally focused so they can get outside of sort of the clause of, you know, a standard insurance system, naturopathic doctors, the list goes on. They're, they basically are making up some revenue such that patients can see them at an attractive rate by getting um, commissions off of supplements like ours that they really believe and stand behind. So a lot of it was driven by factoring in making sure we could have a healthy margin with practitioners being properly incented to. Um, so that was a little bit of the pricing are like, I think our pricing can look premium at the face of it. But what we understand from our consumers is for the nutrient content that's there, it's really high, it's like highly, highly well priced versus a lot of, you know, direct to consumer peers where you're spending a lot of money for almost no nutritional value. Um, so they'd rather like play up to pay up to get more bang for your buck if you say it. From a retail perspective, I think, you know, certainly from a margin perspective, we wanted to price such that retail could be an option one day for long term growth. Um, you know, I think omnichannel is an important aspect, but retail is currently not in our plan over the next two years. Um, for a couple reasons of one, um, we just, we think that we're, uh, because our AOVs are so high, we're doing kind of our current revenue with a very small cohort of customers. And we don't have to find sort of that many customers in order to be a really big business. So focus can help us find those customers more easily and better meet their needs. 
Two, in meeting their needs, we think needed being a destination not just for purchasing supplements, but for getting nutritional education and being able to converse with practitioners and find practitioners is an important aspect of what we do. And then third is we think a differentiating sort of factor is, again, our relationship with the practitioners and that feedback loop of them educating the consumer, us learning from the consumer about them, and us knowing the consumer better. You lose a lot of that touch point if you move into retail too quickly. Totally understand. Um, and makes makes also a ton of sense, just that feedback loop um, that I know kind of started at day one when you when you started even um, talking with, with practitioners about how to create, you know, the best, um, the best product. What are some, um, how do you think also as maybe direct marketing, uh, per se, meaning outside the practitioners, um, to consumer and, and, and how, um, how do you think about that aspect as well with, um, whether it's running ads or, um, or what have you in order to get, um, to get to, um, uh, to get parents like, kind of outside maybe your network of, of practitioners? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's definitely an important aspect of what we do. And we certainly run a number of our own ads that are, you know, not that dissimilar from what a, any other kind of direct to consumer, you know, Instagram ad would look like in a lot of ways. Um, we're just glad that that isn't our only kind of mousetrap when it comes to customer acquisition. I'm also just curious when what is kind of the history of prenatal uh, vitamins? When did it actually when did it actually did it actually start to become you know a pretty sizable business? Do, do you know? <laughs> I don't know the exact date, but it's recent within the last you know twenty thirty years. Um, like a lot of, for a lot of us, you know, our grandmothers did not take prenatal vitamins. And I think there's a lot of consumer education that we put out around, you know, especially for a consumer that, you know, maybe in some ways looks more like me, like has a strong background in environmental health, shops at the farmer's market, liver and bone marrow and these other like super nutrient dense foods are a strong component of my diet. And it's sort of like if I'm doing all the things right food wise, why do I still need a prenatal vitamin? And hey, my mom turned out okay, and my grandma didn't take a prenatal vitamin. Um, and then a lot of that comes back to just like, if you understand the food system, even if you are doing everything right, food isn't where it used to be. And then I think secondarily, we operate in a system where we have so much more um, environmental sort of stress exposure, um, and just like personal stress exposure that make your nutrient needs higher than they were before. That all come back to you can benefit from additional support. And again, I think lastly, we're looking to, I guess, optimize, you know, a healthy pregnancy, how a mom feels and um, cognitive outcomes in kids that prenatals, if you are looking at that same goal, prenatals can be very helpful versus a lot of the lore around like, oh my gosh, you have to be super nauseous your full trimester of pregnancy and just have low energy and have these difficult recoveries. Like we kind of, we think a lot of the lack of proper prenatal nutritional support led that to be the mainstream viewpoint of how kind of 
this perinatal life stage needs to feel, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. I mean, just because um, I know that, you know, maybe our food system was, uh, isn't right now what it used to be, um, which, you know, we've talked about um, that a few times on this show. What specific um, ingredients um, within prenatal vitamins that are actually lacking in, that actually are lacking in food that kind of make up, um, I know, I'm sure the science gets a lot more complex, but, but what are some of like the ingredients that, um, uh, that actually, um, there are deficiencies in, in terms of what, what we eat that are, that are critical to making us, to making women feel, um, a lot better during the whole process. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, there's a lot of them, but, um, magnesium is a great example, mineral, um, that, um, is just so depleted in our soils. So even if you are shopping in the right places, it's just not in food content the way that it used to be. And, you know, magnesium does everything from helping um, kind of like, you know, your brain function properly to you being able to sleep well to um, muscular signaling and not getting kind of cramps and swelling in pregnancy. Um, And that's something that our practitioner base sees again and again that everyone is deficient in magnesium. And the trickiness with magnesium is that um, it's a bulky nutrient. So it's really, if your prenatal is um, two capsules, magnesium very likely isn't going to be there at an efficient dose. Another example of that is um, choline. Um, Choline is something that you've probably heard of folate and folate, everyone's heard that's like what you need to take in pregnancy. Um, for neural early neural tube formation, choline actually works synergistically with folate, um, but is severely lacking from diet. And that's really um, that sort of eggs and a couple of other animal meat parts that people don't eat on a daily basis in a typical diet. It's really substantially not there. And again, choline is a bulky nutrient. So it's difficult to, um, to formulate with if you're looking at optimizing for, you know, a minimalistic one or two kind of capsule experience. And the list can go on. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sure. I, I'm sure the list could go on. No, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Um, in this current market, I'm just um, understand how you uh, finance the beginning from the beginning. And I think that's so awesome that you're able to use that you're able to use levers like, um, like debt and not be and not having to um, rely um, on, um, on uh, VC, um, all VC money. In this current market, when you have, of course, the rates are not what they used to be. Um, how are you thinking about financing um, needed moving forward? <laughs> we are trying to learn what this new reality looks like and what that means for you know, multiples and what interest rate you can actually get debt at. So it's something that we're paying attention. We we will need to raise again and what combination of um, of debt and equity to be figured out. I mean, we if we want to keep growing at the pace that we're growing at, we'll need to raise again. We're we're right now the business is um uh like we would be EBITDA break even if we turned off paid marketing spend, but our paid marketing is, you know, efficient right now. So we want to keep the gas pedal on growth. Um, And we want to push out um, 16 new products next year. And it's expensive, um, you know, to launch that many products. And, And we're, again, unique in that 
their specialty. We're working with a network of different manufacturers. It's not like we're going to one place, making all of our products there because we want, you know, uh, you should make a probiotic at a place that focuses at probiotics. You should make, you know, fish oil gel caps at a place that focuses specifically on those, else you're going to have um, efficacy, efficacy and quality um, issues. Um, so like we're putting the gas pedal on growth. We are in the middle of just like understanding with timing of next year, what that means and what the new reality can look like. So don't know the exact answer, but our our hope is in sort of putting the, you know, blinders on of how do we do best what we do? It's sort of one, our marketing metrics are really strong. We have this amazing practitioner moat that we need to continue investing in. Our sort of operating metrics, if you look at sort of cogs and margin structure is really strong. And we have another sort of, you know, 5% of margin improvement negotiated for next year there. And we've been able to be extraordinarily capital efficient, a lot thanks to um, you know, an amazing inventory planner that we have who like, you know, gets within less than 1% of accuracy in terms of what our buys look like, which is just insane and so helpful when you're growing and making sure, you know, you're, you're putting cash, um, against the right dollars. So all of those factors sort of lead us to be, we should be kind of good companies, get good dollars in a tough environment. Um, but we want to make sure that we don't do ourselves a disservice of, you know, taking money at a greater multiple contraction than what we need to, given the, ma- the like the macro contracting the market overall. No, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, also, just um, when you think about funding, what is kind of the ratio as well, what the right ratio is with be- between debt and equity um, that you're and I've seen more and more brands think about that component, too. Um, about how do you, um, what's kind of the right way to balance um, equity and debt moving forward. What's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? Great question. Um, So professionally, I can say two really quickly. One, um, Yvonne Chouinard's Let My People Go Surfing was the first like business book I ever read. And it's my favorite by far. And again, it's just passion and problem bringing people together to solve problems. And then of late, I've been really inspired by Reed Hastings' No Rules Rules. And it's, I think, really motivated me at work of how do we keep, you know, a hyper-productive, hyper-efficient, hyper-happy-in-love workforce. Um, so that's that's led to a lot of just like, I think, talks around team. And then my personal sort of favorite book of all time and one that I reread most often, actually, it's a super short book, almost like a kid's book, is Rachel Carson's The, um, the Sense of Wonder. And it's really all around how do you maintain that childhood sense of wonder, delight, surprise, awe against the natural world. Awesome. I'm so glad that you brought up these books. I don't think that we've actually had anyone bring these three up. So really excited to uh, to add this to our book list. This is great. Um, my final, my final question is what's, what's one piece of advice that you have given your experience working on needed, um, for, for entrepreneurs? A hundred percent be authentic. Um, I think there's been so many instances where so many people can get in your head, like moving into a pitch and be like, you have to pitch this way. It's what investors expect to hear. 
And those 100% when I do something that doesn't feel kind of natural or authentic to me, this doesn't mean you don't like push yourself a little bit. That's been, you know, the worst conversations I've had. So I just, you know, I would say be authentic, get to know yourself well, know your strengths, know your weaknesses, and um, make sure like you are living your your truth because when you're not it's it's visibly clear to others i think that's a great great point because i also um when any entrepreneur uh comes to me and talks about fundraising or how to approach maybe the first meeting to um uh because they've had maybe some experience of investors saying oh you should do it this way or this is the right way and if that doesn't feel right then that 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 doesn't mean that that is you know the the right answer per se, um, and so I think just know like I really really appreciate that note about about, about being authentic. That's great, um, Ryan. Thank you so much for your time. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. It was indeed. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Ryan. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. Again, if you're enjoying this episode, I highly recommend subscribing to the newsletter at theconsumervc.com for all episodes directly in your inbox, as well as a weekly roundup of all the venture deals happening.